if you can if you can coach in sports or in the science side of it if you can bring information and distill it and make it useful you can do you can work in any industry you want really if there's an industry you're kind of interested in you could do well in it Well, welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. It's wonderful that you've tuned in to the 20th episode. My name's Steve Ingham. I'm a performance scientist by trade, helping elite athletes and high-performance teams reach their peak through the application of scientific principles over the last 25 years. And now the director of Supporting Champions, which applies the many principles of performance that we've learned from sport and business and education to those hoping to find a better way to create performance. And the purpose behind these podcasts is to explore the science, the art, the purpose and the origins of high performance and discuss these concepts with the people who've achieved right at the top end of performance, those people who've been a driving force in making high performance happen and from those who've researched and explored aspects of performance in real depth. So we're founded in sport, but we're equally keen to explore performance in many other industries such as the arts, business, military, education and so many others that are supporting and championing an idea, a goal or other people or a cause. Uh, So last week's episode with Rosie Mays and Jamie Pringle sparked some great engagement about the lessons learned from the front line, the qualities and actions, behaviours needed to work with performers. And one example uh, was a question was raised on Twitter from at Sprague Cycling Coaching. That's that's James Sprague. His question from the podcast was, he asked, considering the importance of culture, role, understanding and social interventions with high performance environments, is sports sociology an untapped discipline? I think it's a fantastic question. And my answer would certainly be yes, alongside potentially philosophy, leadership, management, the whole area of personal effectiveness is often neglected in most of these areas. People are often just left to their own devices about getting support and coaching of their own about how they become effective. Uh, James uh, then replied that he couldn't agree more and whether this whole area of personal effectiveness should form a bigger part of postgrad courses. How about the possibility of a divide at MSc level between more applied practitioner pathways and academic pathways? Uh, And my reply was, I said, honestly, I think that this should be part of fundamental uh, secondary education, GCSE level education, the fundamentals of the way we work and the way we are. Um, I often get asked to go and talk to postgraduates about the big bad world of work. And really, I think this should be something that, that educators are working on far earlier, primarily because it takes time. It takes time to develop some of these personal characteristics and competencies to be effective in the world of work. So many thanks to James and Sprague Cycle Coaching for prompting that question. And so to this week's episode, and this one's an interesting one. Um, We're up to episode 20 of the podcast, so thanks for your support in those who are tuning in so far. And you'll have heard me talk to lots of people so far about performance, achievement, driving forward, focus, resilience, searching for more. And while if you're a regular listener, you'll you'll know that I'm not a subscriber to reducing performance down to a single silver bullet or a formula or a mantra, uh, you'll know that Supporting Champions recognises and explores ultimately about the subtleties, the complexities, the ups and downs, the mistakes, the insights and the honest accounts about that journey aspiring for 
a better way to create performance. So this week's interview is with Harvey Galvin, who epitomizes all of that, but he hasn't got a gold medal to show for it at the end. He's not immediately identifiable with a top performer. In fact, his story is one about not making it in his chosen field, which was in sport. He definitely tried. He tried again. Uh, He certainly grafted and applied entrepreneurial spirit in making those opportunities for himself, but it just didn't work out. And during that time, Harvey's explored his purpose, his drivers, what makes him happy, the need for him to be tenacious and flexible, some of the sacrifices and choices that he's had to make along that journey. And ultimately, Harvey ended up switching career away from sport. And there was a particular reason that I got in touch with Harvey to ask him to come onto the podcast. And that was because he was starting to share his story of that switch away from his initial intended career path. But he's doing it that in a way, he's sharing that story in support of others who might be in a similar situation. And I thought that was a story worth championing. Now, we spoke a few days ago ahead of the podcast. Remind me what your reaction was when, when I asked you to, to come on this recording. Yeah, I kind of didn't know why you'd want me to or anyone would want to hear about anything about someone who'd failed <laughs> in uh, multiple times in sports but um yeah maybe there's gleams of little nuggets I don't know so that was fascinating already that you your immediate impression was oh, so, so he wants the story about failure uh, yeah <laughs> well, that's interesting it tells me a bit about you but um actually I think you've got a really powerful and interesting story to tell and and what I've already picked up and the, and the reason is that you you're you're prepared and you're, you're starting to, to tell that story and yeah. share it in its fullness as opposed to just kind of glibly jump over it and think right I've got a new identity that's that's living and breathing beyond that yeah almost in denial of the past but you're actually sharing the journey of transition that's to me is fascinating yeah, I mean, I, w- I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now without those failures. And um, and you just don't hear when things don't quite work out the way you want them to. You only hear about people that work hard and get what they want. And it's, it's not really reality, mm. I don't mm. think. Well, let's get let's get into that in a bit. Um, but I'd be really interested to hear a bit about your background. Uh, so you know, where have you come from? What's your sort of origins? And um, tell us a little bit about how you grew up and came into this world um i've always been really into sport um but i've i've kind of that that kid was i was in the first team for every sport but i was never the star player i was never fantastic i just like ticking along and playing um and if i'm honest that's kind of a huge part of who i've who i am is i'm just a meanderer i kind of just go along with things uh, more go with the flow than than fight for something different um, uh, for for a long time. And I came to to you know, university choices and, and thinking about well life what you what you want to do. You have to make that decision at eighteen. Mm. And I probably had the mental age of a twelve year old at eighteen. I just didn't really think too much about what I wanted to do other than I like sport. Um, and. I went to do a sports science degree at the University of Gloucestershire. Um, again, part of the reason I chose there was I just wanted to be somewhere really just different, nice in 
They're in a nice environment. Um, so where's home? Home's uh, was Bedford, right. um, which is uh, East Midlands, and it was um, yeah, it was a, a fairly innocuous. Everything was <laughs> fairly standard, um, and I just decided that all my friends were going to London, Nottingham, that kind of area. If you're going into sports, it was. If you're not going into Loughborough or Bath, then what's the point? Um, but I saw that as a bit of a challenge, and well, I'm going to go somewhere different. Mm. Um, I went to the, I went to view the campuses like Brunel and uh, and Loughborough and things like that, and they're all fantastic. But then when I went over to Gloucester, and it sounds silly, but with all the countryside around it, and they had brand new facilities, it was just like it's a lovely mix. Mm. Um, and decided without thinking too much that. That sounds good to me. I'm going to go for that. And did that um, over the three years. And if I'm really honest, looking back, I just kind of cruised through it. It was more about le- growing a bit for me. It was, uh, I needed to grow up a bit. Um, I didn't really realise, I wasn't doing the extra stuff outside of hours. I, I, I'd have a job in a bar every now and again, but I wouldn't go and coach. I wouldn't go to, to sport. I just played rugby. You know, I was... I, I luckily got to the point where a club would, for some reason, would pay me to train and play. And I thought, well, this is everything I need as a student. Mm. You know, that extra bit of cash was just, I didn't need to worry about careers and everything afterwards. Um, and it, the best thing that then happened was I did terribly on my dissertation. Went in very confident, didn't get lots of feedback from the, from the lecturers. I kind of just was happy to do it myself and and probably blamed them a bit for not being as involved because everyone thinks that yeah. it's their job to get you going mm. and it's complete opposite it's all down to you and you can use them as a tool I didn't see that at the time and so I did terribly and and ended up with a 2-2 um which so, so you said that was the best thing that happened to best you best thing that happened to me it how, how long did it take you to realize that um Probably when I was talking, writing out to you, what, what about them looking at my background? <laughs> like um, Friday last yeah, week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just didn't, I hadn't really thought about it too much and, and realised that that was a real bee in my bonnet that I, I hadn't done as well as I should have. I hadn't thought through anything. I was just coasting um, and I needed to do something different because that led me to write. The easy thing to do would be to move in with friends, get any job um, and continue living in Gloucester, Cheltenham. It's a lovely area. But I decided that I had to move home so that I didn't pay rent and and get a job and use every bit of that money to do qualifications, go to conferences, go use that money so that I could work for clubs for free because they weren't paying. And for little clubs as well, they didn't have the money. Um, and that kick-started, that made me go and do a master's because who am I to walk in with a crap degree? <laughs> right. Going up against people from much bigger universities with first-class degrees. Mm. Um, so it kind of, it was a cascade. That's what started, I think, everything. Okay, so there's a momentum after the, the lull of your grades and your dissertation uh, disappointment and then thinking, right, how do I build this? And And you've got a a side hustle with your bar jobs and your 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 extra curricular jobs to in, in order to allow you to 
to graft away at a kind of a voluntary based performance support type thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> I started with the local rowing clubs um, in Bedford. So they, they were two good good standards. They they'd in the past they'd had people rowing at Henley and doing very well. Um, so I, I just helped out there. And we were just talking before we started this that mm. I was using your papers. Yeah. I'll cut um, that out. Though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can't have anything as self-gratifying as that. No, no you've got to leave it in. Um, and, and that led me to then being able to work at places like uh, Watford Football Club and, okay. and Bedford Blues Rugby Club. You know, I would do... I'd do two days a week at Watford and three days a week at Bedford, all not paid. And then in the evenings, I'd go work in a bar uh, or a restaurant and pay the... And, because I was living at home, I'd then just, that would all go on commuting and conferences and different things like that. Um, because that was how I saw the only way of breaking into a profession without a particularly good academic background. It had to be through mm. a bit of graft and, and, and life and experience of doing it, of working with, yeah. with actual athletes rather than theoretical athletes. Mm. Mm. That's interesting. So you, you're creating it out I mean, looking back at the the academic experience, because you you've attached success to that a little bit, um, it, it's it's almost inhibiting your ability to get in. Um, but looking back at your academic studies, anyway, were the opportunities to acquire the the lessons and the experience there for you if you would have taken it? Um, I I don't think so. I think at the time. So it was two thousand three to seven. It was it, it was very academically focused. Mm. It was it wasn't particularly particularly performance support. It was you know exercise physiology, which is kind of different. Mm. Um, I think that if you had come to them with an idea of doing things that they would have supported and helped and tried to find out maybe what you could do, um, but I, I didn't see that at the time and. I've got friends who are lecturers now, and I think it's the same thing. You still people are still a bit too young to realise. I think the opportunity they've got when they've got the free time and the yeah. sort of no worries, um, the things that they could be doing. Mm. So I'm interested to know. You know, you said you said that you got the mental age of a twelve year old when you were eighteen and so on. But I'm interested to know whether that that drifting period. Um, early doors, GCSEs, A-levels, into your degree, whether that has any value when you look back. Um, because I think sometimes we we think about almost early specialisation in yep. academic yeah. uh, courses and thinking, you know, you've got to be, you've got to be on it and specialising in, in, in deep clinical psychology at nine, but you want to be a psychologist. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious as to whether that actually that free spirit nature has, in retrospect has got any value um i've thought quite deeply about about that actually um and i think i was desperate for i wanted a purpose or a passion because i had friends who were going to do things they were this is what they're going to do and i just never had anything mm. i was always just interested in a few things nothing grabbed me so much that what would you do with your free time and it's just that it was just nothing, even rugby, you know, it was, I played twice, trained twice a week and then I played. It wasn't, right, what extra training can I do? What matches can I watch? It just, and I always felt that it was my downfall 
Like I didn't have anything. And now I kind of actually have the opinion, and it's all biased because it's who, it's who I am, mm. um, that that is, I, I feel so, I actually feel sorry for people that have that passion sometimes. And you see, you must have seen it with a lot of athletes. You've got people who they want, they have wanted nothing more than to be number one in the world at doing something and they might not get there. And to them, their world is not, it's not been achieved. Their greatness has not been achieved because that's the one thing they've done. And something like an injury has, has stopped it from happening. And actually what I've been able to do is to just be flexible. Mm. What, hap- what, what happens? What can I do? And can I be good at that? And then if you change and you take some skills from that and you go do something else and what can I do well in that? And, and I'm kind of almost in the, in the opinion now that, you know, life is quite short and why do you want to do the same thing all the time? I quite like the idea of changing every seven to ten years and mm. doing something completely different. That's an interesting concept. Almost the um, this generation of... Um, next next generation of workers and so on, thinking about having a purpose from a very young age. Mm. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm volun- I interviewed someone for a volunteer post with us recently. Uh, they're all of, sort of twenty years old, and um, and they're talk- asking me what's what's the company's purpose? What's your life purpose? My purpose is this, and I, I was like, oh my god, wow, that's that's amazing to hear that come out of mm. some someone of of that. Uh, age and stage of development and I, I didn't know I didn't know what that was deep lying and and I suppose this, this sort of Simon Sinek generation of people that have got to find their purpose early which I think has got value but I don't um, I, I wonder whether discovering that is is almost a multiplier for it to become a, an acceleration it, 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 I think it's exactly the same as looking for love or looking for happiness you focus purely on that and you, and you go in the opposite direction mm. Right, you do. You 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 create things that actually mean that you just focus on what you haven't got. Mm. And and when I look back through all the, I joke about all the failures and different things like that. I've been just incredibly happy. Like you, I don't think you meet many people who've met me and have felt that I've been begrudged or embittered or anything like that, because I've just been. If you happily deal with your situation there and then, you don't deserve anything. You can put in the work. It doesn't mean that the outcome is going to happen. Mm. It means that you, you're you willing to accept that and things don't work out. You go, right, okay, what do I do now? Mm. Okay, so contentment and, um, and finding your way as opposed to complaining that there ain't enough opportunities and I need this to be sort of spoon-fed to me. It's, I feel really difficult. It's a really difficult situation for, for people, you know, studying now and and recently you know finished studying and and I do think that everyone wants the the best job they, they all oh, obviously in every industry they all want the best job but they're not willing to look at the reality of it and I and I'm trying to figure out in my head you know I've had a few conversations on Twitter with people and and people are you know they want the national governing bodies uh, or the UK SCA or, or bases to, to drive the, the wages up. Um, and because my now I'm working so much more in business, and I kind of see how that's kind of 
a way of making things worse in my mind mm. you you make clubs and you say right this is has to be paid you have to be paid this for this um and i feel like you, you're then just making clubs feel right well we're gonna you, you become a commodity it becomes right well who's gonna work for this amount of money and we've got to pull that money from somewhere else and they get annoyed that sports scientists are costing this much when they still haven't bought into the value of it yeah okay um whereas what really i think is hopefully going to happen is that the players and the coaches start really seeing the value of it mm. and can say we need this if, they, if, if a player is going to a club and they're asking about the coaching or asking about the environment <clears throat> and they go so what's the sports science like here yeah okay. that's what's going to get owners to go well we, we better who's a good sports scientist then <laughs> yeah yeah and it's it's true because if people aren't being paid enough then they haven't demonstrated the value enough and all right now we're chatting now because um because it's interesting and we get got all philosophical then um i'm keen to uh, to sort of find out what happened next then after you'd set up this emerging um amateur spare time consultancy type um support you you know you, you got some some positions with governing bodies and so yeah, on. Yeah, so um, doing the uh, so I was doing that, and I realised that the next sort of step um, was that I needed to do a masters um, because as much as I started getting experience, I still had this degree that wasn't that great on my CV. And, and again, you look at job interviews; you're not even going to get to the interview bit because there are so many applications. Mm. So I was like, right, I've got a network, meet some people, and I need to do this in my... It's about over two years, part-time. I didn't drop anything. I just added that on top of other things. Um, and decided that I had to be a bit strategic about it now. And rather than, right, I was going to go to Loughborough, Bath, you know, I keep going on about those because I kept thinking that was what was going to mm. be the next thing but I realised I've already I'm already different I'm already not that way academically inclined so I just need to find somewhere that is going to have more job opportunities and so at the time uh, Roehampton were linked with Harlequins with London Broncos and they were close to the LTA mm. um, so to me and, and I could commute from home and I was like it was a long commute but I could commute and so I thought you know this is that's the best option as much as you're trying to be strategic, it's just you're trying to where has the best amount of options and we'll just see what happens. Because when I was there, the LTA, uh, Carl Cook at the LTA yeah. uh, came down and said, look, we're looking for some volunteers. Um, I was the most experienced out of the people there because I'd gone and mm. done extra things. I hadn't come straight to a master's from, from, from undergraduate. Uh, so I got to go and do that. He didn't go back there the next two years. You know, that's all luck. That's complete luck that he, that year I was there, he came, he went down, we need some volunteers. The next two years, they were like, oh, we're fine. We don't, you know, we don't need to, we've got people in, we don't need yeah. more people. Hmm. Um, and so luckily I managed to, so from that volunteer work, managed to embed into their next, okay, well, we're now we need a sports scientist. Um, I realise now that I was negotiating wages and things then. Um, because I had a part-time job with St Mary's University as well. And I pushed, oh, that was it, because I was doing the Masters, I was like, I wanted to do bases as well. And nearby, there was Charlie Pedler, mm. um, who 
was fantastic for me. I, I just got in touch. He was like, look, come have a chat. We'll see what's, um, what, what you're interested in. And I didn't really expect anything of it, but I managed to do supervised experience under him. And that was a just incredible experience. Um, and got me, again, you're in the right place, right time. They needed someone to run the, the, the performance lab, just a technician type thing. There you go. It's only, it's only two days a week. Doesn't matter. That's fine for me. I, I'm, I'm in. And so I was in a negotiating position with the LTA then that they wanted you to do a sports science job full time for, what was it? I think it was like 10 grand um, full time in London. And you mm. just thought, so I, I negotiated and said, I'll do it part time for, I think I said seven and a half or eight and I'll do the other part time. And they said, I, when you go in really like willing to lose it, because it's if they hadn't paid me that I wasn't I'd moved out at that point that was it I'd moved out so I needed to earn some money mm. and um, they, they they agreed to it they, they ended up hiring another person full time as well um, because they realised that they yeah it cost not a lot of money <laughs> yeah so how long were you at the LTA for? Um, so the LTA was nearly three years uh, and my role changed quite a bit. So intern, sports scientist, and then they had a research position that someone was doing at the time involved with altitude training. Um, so they had a chamber and it was with London South Bank University mixed with them. And um, that person left. And so suddenly they had this funding that needed to be filled. And mm. again, what's the easiest thing to do is someone that you know um, and I left my St Mary's position to do that. Um, so I was full time. Well, te- I was full time technically at the LTA, but it was mixed between research and um, and a few other things. Um, and then when that contract ended, that was I assumed going to be the next step of right. Well, where's the next job? Or 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 back into the sports science role with the LTA because it had really developed the sports mm. science department, and Carl had done a great job there. Um, but it, it didn't happen. And, and do you know why? Um, not particularly. I, 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 I assumed that I would get another contract and I'd even proposed what I would do, uh, job description, everything, and, and, and pay. And, and everyone had kind of said, yeah, that kind of, that sounds good. And I just never really closed it. I never said, is this definitely going to happen? I kept mm. letting it go, letting it go. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. And it came to it and they said, no, oh, sorry, we're, we're not having another position. And and suddenly you kind of realised that I've left quite a bit of my eggs in one basket because yeah, I okay. thought something was happening and I just hadn't communicated properly. So give us a time scale then. So how long after you'd done your um, undergrad was this? Um, so this would have been... When this when the contract ended, mm. um, it would have been say two thousand seven, five years, okay. six years, two thousand twelve. Okay. Yeah. So fair time um, postgraduate. Now, um, how were you when that happened? What happened? You know, what were your feelings? How did it go? Um, it it wasn't good. It wasn't good because I thought, you know, that's what I was expecting. But at the time, I then thought, I, I talked to a lot of other sports scientists and, again, I, I was different. I had this mix now 
where I had the academic stuff and the mm. research with altitude training and things like that, but I had worked with athletes and and with the LTA it was a good a good level. Um, so I thought naively that it wouldn't be too difficult to find a job. It would just be a case of uh, being able to wait and not long enough. And it, it it just didn't happen. Like I, I applied to, oh God knows, hundreds, and wasn't even getting an interview. And so, because of that, you we don't get feedback. You don't mm. learn what's what's happening, what you're missing. Mm. Um, and I kind of maybe felt that I was just losing momentum, and thought, right, I'll I'll start a small business for myself then. Um, consultancy I'll just mm. go to small clubs and individual athletes and and try and do that um, and I think I I probably so I was living in London at the time and had met my um, wife-to-be and we ended up uh, expecting my first daughter at the end we found out Christmas 2012 and so suddenly everything, everything then got very, very real. Yeah, okay. And I had to make the small company work and I couldn't just go for any job. It was, uh, I was still applying for jobs because I was thinking, you know, right place, we'll move, it doesn't matter. Mm. Um, and I think this is when you realise that part of the reason that I was getting the jobs that I had was because I was in the right places and I was, and suddenly when you're outside of it, it's it's very difficult to to work your way back in I think mm. um, I, I did manage to get a, a job offer uh, out in the Middle East as a researcher um, but it, it didn't it took it took a year from the day they offered they offered me the job to the day they offered me the contract to say this is when you'll start right so in that year my daughter so I think when I got the job my daughter was two months old so suddenly my daughter was a year and a year and a month old, we were living with parents again and I was watching my daughter grow up with grandparents and family and I kind of thought, do I want to be a researcher? Because at the moment it's just because it's the only job I can get. Yeah. And that's what led to then thinking, it, what, what, what am I doing in sport? Why am I in sport? So you had a series of questions, life events that were all sort of swirling around a little bit there yeah. that... That made you deeply question where yeah. you were in work, but also life. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's it's difficult when you, like I said, you've worked for something. And so if you include the undergraduate, you know, you're talking about 10 years just over. And you realise that it's not going to... Or, or okay, so... For that to happen, I have to make these sacrifices. Mm. And at the time, the sacrifices were money, um, location, and potentially time, because I'd have to put more time in again to get the, to where I wanted to be. And they were all things that I didn't want to sacrifice. And I saw people that were willing to sacrifice that, and I just realised it wasn't. I wasn't made for it. It wasn't. Like I said, I hadn't got this huge, huge passion about. Sport. I didn't spend my waking moments outside of work watching sports and mm. and, and and all that sort of thing it, it it was a fun job and I almost and the way that I framed a lot of interviews afterwards when people said why are you changing mm. is I framed it was as if 
I felt like I was a sports person and my career had come to an end. And that's what sports people have to deal with all the time. Yeah. It's 10 years, 15 years, and right, that's done. What do you do now? Yeah, okay. So that's, that's quite a hearty, healthy way of viewing it, that this is a normal point to, to step off almost. But yeah. it sounds like you had you had to almost really go to ground and, and check in with your basic needs and your values. and. Yeah, the it was difficult. I was living with, so living with my in-laws... You know, I'd I'd borrowed money off them to buy buy equipment to to run this consultancy thing, and it, it was just getting tiny bits of money in. It wasn't doing that well, um, and I, I just felt like I was just complete failure. It was it was a case of oh, I've got to uh, I've got to go and read some stuff for for a for an interview or, or for for a job thing. Okay, yeah, and I'd go off at the top of the garden with a book. I wouldn't be reading at all. I'd just be sat there thinking, oh, what. What have I done? This is all come falling apart, falling down around me, and I don't know how I'm going to change this. Mm. My daughter and my wife are just. You know, my wife then had to. She was like, "Well, she'll have to work. She'll have to go and find a job." And at the time, the only job available was you know in a shop. And I was suddenly thinking, "I'm just. This is all not what I wanted." And the only thing that I'm really looking. And so that's when I was right. I need to research what why am I what am I interested in what can I do and you start realizing that you just want challenging work that you can take charge of and if it comes along with um, you know a bit of makes you feel good then great but for a period of time when you've got a family to look after it's not the priority yeah so high stakes versus adherence to you know, a choice that you made almost drifted into sport yeah. um, and you're you're sort of attached to that almost an affinity because that was the route of training that you've had versus high stakes of supporting your family yeah and and that was the way up decision you it sounds like you were, you were making exactly um, you know I think it was that making that decision of not going out to the Middle East it was then right well I've chosen family and so what else do I have to choose now right to be the to be the man and the father that I say I am, what actions actually am I doing to to back that up? Um, Can you remember when you first had those thoughts? Can you remember, was it still down at the bottom of the garden <laughs> with some pretend papers under your arms? It or? was, it was, uh, I can remember exactly. Um, it was a winter, I can't, remember, I can't remember when it was winter, but it was, so my in-laws live out in the countryside. Yeah. Um, and I'd lived in London for three some odd years. I'd always lived in towns and, and out in the countryside, there's a lot of stars. And I was sat there under right. the stars in my um, uh, father-in-law's hammock. And I th- just thought I was sat there and I was I was crying, thinking I've, I've something's not gone right here and I can change this. I can let things happen to me as I have done regularly yeah. or I can say that chapter's done and I can start something new. Mm. And the next day it was a case of, right, where do I start and what books do I read and wow. that kind of thing. So you can remember the, the moment, it was at night. I, can, the, the I, can, I can remember breathing deeply and seeing my the air come out as I, as I breathed out um, and just thinking, well, what, what's, what are we here for? And I'm probably making this too complicated 
something hasn't worked, does that mean that I'm less of a person? Mm. And it doesn't. I've got every good intention to be a good person. So why would I let this drag me down Mm. um, when there's other options? So that sounds like a real crucible moment for you where it was uh, kind of buck your your ideas up or you've had your period of mourning um, and you're looking up literally at the stars and thinking, what next? (laughs) Wow, what what an amazing day looking back. Yeah, um, it's... I've also got the the very fortunate experience of having a, um, a heart condition. <laughs> Said no one ever. No, they do, they do, they do, they do. When you, when you frame it properly. I'm, uh, okay, tell so, us a bit so, about that. So I'm fortunate because so I was 13, I got diagnosed with aortic stenosis, a hole in the valve. Uh, it doesn't work correctly. Um, and I always used to joke that that was the thing that stopped me becoming a sports person. You know, <laughs> my, my ventricle wasn't quite filling to capacity, so uh, that's what was nice. hindered everything. I just blame my parents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and while I was working, what you can probably I probably didn't convey really is the other side of working two or three jobs at a time and commuting two three hours a day, four hours sometimes. Um, I was burning out mm. really badly without realising. Um, you, you can cope with a lot when you're in your 20s, I think. You just don't even think about it. And then I started getting um, supraventricular tachycardic episodes. So Brought on by the stress. Was that's it? what the doctors seem to think. There's okay. nothing else they can find that um, is really like big triggers for it. Um, and so my heart rate was going to 250 sat still call it your turbo boost and where I say that I'm fortunate is that it's not a serious condition okay SVT is kind of people have it it happens they might get an ablation to try and stop it in the future but if you don't need to you don't need to but for the moment that it happens Mm. you think that that things are going to happen yeah okay so you have this realize these realizations that you know, you might need to, ch- things aren't working properly, you might need to change things. You, you are aware of your mortality, which most people don't want to talk about. And I think when you actually embrace it, it makes things a hell of a lot easier. Mm. Um, you see things for what they really are, whether it's important or not. So you say that you're um, fortunate enough. And so um, being able to have a fairly vivid and tangible warning sign, I can imagine is is self-calibrating for a lot of people yeah. but but just having it there does that does that does that enable you to keep on the straight and narrow a little yeah. bit in terms of um behaviors nutrition sleep uh, completely management of your own energy I, I, i'm doing i'm doing stuff as if i was you know a 60 year old exec that's had a heart attack you know they suddenly realize that the life that they've been leading hasn't actually been what they've wanted they've just been following a treadmill um, and so now I'm thinking, you know, is thing is this decision that I'm making really who I am, part of who I am, and yeah. and and what I value? And if it's not, then then don't do it. And and can I ask you in terms of your observations of your own productivity, whether that's um, whether you're in credit compared with your peers that are pushing harder and harder necessarily versus somebody who's got a bit of balance and not always on necessarily because of this. Um, the thing that I've definitely realised is that um, we're, we're told regularly that hard work will get you what you want. 
And I'm starting to see that that's a narrative because it makes people feel good. And really, you should be trying to find skills that you are talented at. And the way I link it is like the analogy of sports people where um, you could be an average sports person and you could work twice as hard as the next guy and get to a certain level. The next guy who's talented can do half the work and still beat you. And I see life as why are you choosing the things that are all the hard work and you don't get the real rewards out of it Mm. rather than... You almost want to be able to do half, do your job in two hours in a day, and be able to say that you did, you got the before, you got the results, you did mm. the, the stuff you needed to. But we're very much in a culture that you can't do that. You have to be there eight hours. You have to, mm. and it kind of think, well, actually, you just hard work isn't everything. That's that's a that's a great reframe of finding finding the skills that you're talented at. What have you got any habits that keep you? Um, keep you on the right side of of healthy um the only one that i've managed to so one thing i like again i saw it as failure at the time is that i picked up i used to pick up lots of little habits and then i'd stop doing them after you know the usual thing they say or is it four to six weeks if you haven't managed to keep yeah. it stick it's not going to stick and i would berate myself you know i've I've tried to do, I've tried to exercise every single day and it's not worked out. And mm. even only, even sometimes it was only 10 minutes and I didn't do it. And, and actually, again, I'm starting to see that what that means is that you weren't really invested in it mm. to begin with. You didn't enjoy it. And maybe there's things that you should do regardless, but I just don't see it. I think if you, if you need to find something else, mm. if you can't exercise every day, that's because you doing running or whatever it's because you don't like running mm. if you don't like it you don't like it and i don't think any there are going to be people who just never knew they liked it but i think the only thing that has stuck is that i every morning i, I'm, I journal and i write mm. um ideas things that happened yesterday monotonous stuff am i saying am i doing what i said i would do that kind of stuff um, that's the only thing that's really, really stuck. And why? Why, is, why do you think it's stuck? What does it give you? I enjoy it. It makes me, makes me feel that um, I'm, I'm listening to myself. Uh, I'm listening to my body. Um, I'm not doing the, the stuff that actually just drains you. Yeah. Okay. I just, yeah. I don't know. I just enjoy it. It's kind mm. of one of those things. Not, I'm not even too sure about why. As a as a habit in terms of building resilience, but also focus priority. What's going to give you most value that day? It's a and when you're having a tough time, mm. uh, it's very easy to spiral into thoughts that are not helpful. And right. now I've got a bank of notes that I can look back at tough times and see what I was feeling then, and go, "Oh yeah, I'm feeling that." Yeah. Okay. It's tough at the moment, but. I'm sure. It'll, I'm sure there are things I can do outside of this that will turn it around. That'll it'll turn around itself, or I'll just keep plodding along and do what I need to do. Right. Because I'm, I'm confident that I am. And uh, I read a the I think it's called the Book of Five Rings about you know Japanese um, philosophy, and they develop what's called the way, and the way is that you are certain that things you're doing are the things you should be doing, mm. regardless of outcome. 
And I think we're always thinking, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing the right thing? Mm. And when you do that, you end up not doing anything. Mm. And so just going, look, I'll, well, if today I'm a good dad and I'm a good husband and I do my job well. It's been a good day. Mm. That's, that's fantastic. I, I love that. So you took a different path. You, st- you started to, to then build the new uh, phase of your working career. I started out with... Again, so rather than... I did read Simon Sinek's Start With Why, mm. and uh, I just saw it as a... Um, it was useful, but only to a certain point. When you're in realities of you need the job, it's it's not always the best thing. Yeah, Turning up to a uh, an intern job or something and saying your purpose is kind of overkill, in my mind. Um, if that's in a, innately within you, then fine, but uh, you just need to show you can do the job. Mm. And so I started looking at my, I read uh, Cal Newport's Be So Good They Can't uh, Ignore You. And that was a very much a passion is not how you choose a career. It's um, what, what, what are you good at? Uh, and then working up from there. And I realised, th- I started asking friends and people that I'd worked with what I was good at, what I wasn't. And the things they told me I was good at was, um, you know, conveying complex things into very simple so it's manageable um, and and building rapport. Like, uh, the people that I really engaged mm. with, it, you know, go on really well with, they would trust whatever I would then bring to them. Mm. Uh, and so I started thinking about sales, mainly also because I'd done so badly at it <laughs> with my own <laughs> consultancy. I'd, I'd get, get a lesson in it so you could take I it did. back. I just started realising that I was like, I'd, I'd have three or four meetings and each meeting I'd think, I was getting like, all right, the next meeting they'll say yes. Because every time we talk, they seem to be in, encouraged and like enthusiastic. The next meeting, oh, they've brought another issue. Okay, I'll, I'll figure that out and I'll put more work into it. Next meeting, I'll figure, yeah, yeah, okay, now I get it. Now I get it. I'm going to do it. Final meeting, yeah, no, we're, we're not doing it. And you realise that just a bit of, just a small bit of sales training will realise if you haven't closed the first meeting in terms of what will happen next, even if it's not the sale. Mm then you, you just, yeah, you're creating more work for yourself. So I thought, right, sales will be an area that I can look at and is hopefully going to pay the bills. Where can I mix that with what I've done already? And I started looking at medical and pharmaceutical and things like that and realised that that's a very good area to be in with the skills that I had. Um, it was just a challenge of how do you, how do you get into it, really, mm. um, which was... It was very difficult. It took about nine months from when I was, right, I now know that that's what I need to do. It's going to be the best option for me. I need to go all in at it and find out whether I can. And, yeah, it was about nine months. And, again, a lot of luck um, involved, right place, right time, um, because they, there's a lot of barriers to, to people getting into that industry. And, and what were those? And did you have to tell, tell, tell us what those were, but also how you got bridged the gap? Um, well, to start with, they, it's a sales job and I had not had any sales experience. So they said, well, why why are we going to take on someone that needs to hit a target and needs to do this when we don't know where you, whether you will? Mm. And you've got to remember, the people hiring you, it's their livelihood and their job too. And they yeah. hire a wild card that can't do the job. They look stupid. Mm. And they're thinking about promotion or thinking about their target. You know, it's 
and you, you've got to show that you're worth the risk and and that's very difficult because pe- it depends on the people at the time depends on their background um i think one of the things that i've read about was that you sh- people generally hire people like themselves so if i was in a sports management job i would hire people that were from um smaller universities that had to do extra ex- uh, do other experience over someone that got a fantastic degree somewhere else because that was my route right so you've got to find hiring managers that aren't they've come from something different okay and I'm jumping ahead, but the guy who ended up hiring me was a car dealer and got into medical sales. And right. he, so he knew that he was so like, you can do something different and still be good at this. Um, and Did you find him out and, ch- and, and no, hunt no. him down? All that shit? As much so as I, yeah, as much as I wish. Okay, it, right. That was, it was, I'd had about, I'd, I'd at least started to get interviews, but I still wasn't getting jobs um, until I finally got offered one but it was covering the entire south of the UK and it was you'll stay away in hotels three nights a week. Okay. And that didn't fit with my value. As much as I needed a job, it didn't fit with, well, why am I doing that job if I don't see my family? So I turned that down, which was very hard to do. Um, But um, I managed to get um, interviews with about five or six companies the good thing was, is an interview, even if you don't get the interview, is a chance to show yourself to HR, to manage other management. Mm. And they do, they, everyone has a hiring problem. Yeah. They want to hire the best. How do you find them? Mm. If they see something in you, but you're not right for that position, they they will think of you again. Mm. And that's what happened. I, I didn't get a position with a company. So the, a company, work for a company called Striker now. Big, big m- medical I think they internationally they do something like thirteen billion in sales now, which is just I couldn't even get my head around that. Mm. Um, I didn't get a job there, and someone put me. Someone there just said, "Well, to this guy, this manager who I, this is my manager now, um, you should have a look at this guy. He's interesting. He's worth a look." Mm. Uh, and things developed from there. Um, how I got those interviews because one of the things they love to do in medical sales is say. Um, have you got any experience going into theatre? Because that's part of the job is you'll be in theatre. Knowing that you, it's very difficult to get into theatre. Mm. How do you do that? And if you can sell your way into doing that, you're probably going to be able to, to do something. Um, giving the secret away how I did it, um, I, I, I just thought, I, didn't wanna, I need to talk to reps. I need to talk to people doing it. And you realise pretty, I realised quickly that it's also in their interest to find people who are pretty good because they get a little commission if some, someone hires right. uh, someone from outside without recruiter or anything like that, they get the bonus that they would pay a recruiter. Right, finders fee. Yeah. Okay. So I started talking to people about you know what I was like, and 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 you got to knock a lot of doors. I talked to a, try and talk to a lot and lot of reps. And again, just one guy was on his way out of a job and he said, look, uh, so he was staying within the company. So he said, you come interview, come and interview for my job. I said, well, the thing is, I can't, I haven't been into theatres. All right, come with me. And once you've done that, mm. that opened a lot more. Yeah, you've mentioned a couple of times, uh, right place, right time. 
but it doesn't sound like right place, right time. You've made the right, you've made the yeah, time, you, and you've made the place. You've made it, but have you had? Have you got enough time to wait for that? That's what I mean, because that might not have happened for another six to nine months, and by that point, I might yeah. have thought this: I can't do this. I'm not. I'm not getting any traction. Was it drive, or was it just following your nose? Um, following the nose. Yeah, it was. What do I think I should do, and just, mm. just go and go and do it, and. And that thing, like I said, about when you find that you're talented at something, you just double down on something that's going well. Mm. I think you try a lot of little things. Things don't work. The recruiting mm. angle that I was going to recruiters wasn't working. Um, but if you don't try, you don't know. Uh, and, yeah, figured out that it, that was the route I was going to get introductions. Mm. Um, so so when did you get your first medical sales job? How long have you been in it now? I've been in it, so same job. I've been in it for just over three years, yeah. um, and it uh, it was with the company that I'd interviewed for, not got a job. Went to see this uh, hiring manager, and again, right place, right time. There was a position locally, so where I live in Cheltenham, and there was a position just here where the rep had just lost a huge account, and so the territory was going to not going to hit their targets. It was going to be really bad. And they were like, what do we do? We need someone who is in, in it for a long period. They're not going to be, right, how do I get my bonus? How do I? Mm. And it was just fit perfectly that right. I was willing to put the work in to get up to scratch with the sales stuff. Technically, I picked up the stuff quite quickly. How long would, they, would you say that that transition took? Getting to know the sales stuff or mm. three years? Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, You're still not there yet. It's there's so much deftness and subtleties to it that you think you make progress with stuff and then it doesn't happen and you kind of look back as to why and you realise you've just missed fundamental bits of getting someone to trust and buy in. Okay. Um, so give us some clues about that. Then. So what what are your the key lessons from having s- learned about the craft of of selling and and how that kind of relates to us all. Um, the, the, the big one for me was learning to, to get out of your own narrative, your own head. You have your objectives. Your objective is, I want someone to use this. I want someone to pick up my idea. I want this. I want this. The person you're talking to has a completely different objective. They have the same things running through their head that you do, but going in different directions. And until you properly address those, or at least figure out what they are, and try and frame your solution around it. People will people will say yes all day long to get you out of their door. People will agree and be nice and say yeah yeah whatever. And it's um yeah it's uh and until you figure that stuff out, you're gonna get nowhere. You're just gonna go around in circles, which is definitely what I did for quite a bit of time. So work finding out what their objectives are. And working to that, yeah. as opposed and, to, and quite, here's my thing that I want to exactly. flog. Uh, and it's difficult because you're in your own head. Someone's talking to you and you're thinking about your next com- your next question, mm. rather than what are they saying and, and really understanding what they're saying. Um, and yeah, I struggled with that. I did well and I still managed to, to hit targets and people were still saying yes and doing things, but... I, it took a lot of work. It was every morning, evening. Again, this hard of, I had to work extra hard just to get to normal. Okay. 
and you would talk to other reps who were doing nothing and they would just be fine. Was that, were they doing nothing or were they just more trained and skilled to, Sorry, yeah, and they, they habitual could do it. to that Yeah, they could method. do it in such a short period of time right? because they, um, and you try and get them to tell you about it and it's impossible. Like they can't, <laughs> like people can't really, um, and I'm struggling to do it now, really um, uh, translate what they feel to words of what you should do. Because a lot of it grown is up just, it? yeah, I think a lot of it is just, they can, I mean, people could, some people can just read people. That's just how they're good at it. Mm. Um, they can read when someone's, well, they're not quite getting into this. And you'd be sort of going, oh, I, I didn't see that. Right. And then the, the ability to shift or, yes. uh, or cut, you know, cut their losses and get out of there. Yeah. So that they're more time efficient somewhere else in that sense. Yeah, exactly. So can I ask you then, uh, having taken that, that step, the transition, um, three years in now, um, some key lessons about sales and and influencing people. Looking back, um, what are the kind of the key messages that you've got to share with with people in a similar scenario, but also just about how how effective you, you potentially can be in in life? Um, yeah, the what I would say to people who are working in sports science now it's kind of got two two things that i think i can sort of talk about and one is that you can change you can you can just you can take the skills that you've put all in there and and take them elsewhere and i think you you'll do really well because it is a tough environment even like people coming into this medical sales thing everyone talks about how tough it is but to be honest it's still like they're talking about, like, um, you know, I'll hit your bonus and things, but it's still more money than, you know, in a year than I would make in my entirety of working at sports scientist. Mm. So, you know, they're stuck in that bubble of thinking that it's tough, tough, tough. I think once you've done all the hard work in, in working in sports and that stuff, you can take that elsewhere. I think just having that knowledge at least. Mm. Um, you can't rely solely on your job because your job could disappear at any time you need the um uh i think uh do you, have you read much by nasim taleb his uh his thing is uh, fu money and i think it's it's it's, it's an fu attitude of mm. you need to have the confidence that you will be able to do something else if this isn't right for you um so for example um i remember going to one club and it was a voluntary job to start with, with, you know, moving on. And very quickly I realised it was, you know, they just wanted you to do all the drudgery work. And it was just, nah, not not for me. Mm. Admittedly, if it was the very first thing I did, I'd know that I'd have to get it on my CV. Yeah. So once you get to a certain point, you can know that you can change mm. and you'll, you'll be okay. Um, if you're still working in it and want to, to just progress, the things that I wish I'd known is that sales side of things. It's the, everything you do is selling. You're selling to athletes, you're selling to coaches, you're selling to parents, you're selling to your bosses that you have your worth. Um, and I think a lot of people do it naturally, they do it well. You see them integrate into a team and they, they're almost part of it, like within a day. Mm. Uh, and that's part of the talent that I think people have and that I didn't have necessarily. I wasn't that great. I'm quite introverted and it took a while to really build those relationships. Admittedly, I think that's a good thing now because 
when you build a long relationship, it's less likely that that relationship is just going to drop you. Mm. Um, but getting out of your own head and actually thinking, what is that person thinking? And the biggest sales thing that I learned is asking them. We seem to place this huge thing on, I should know. Or, or maybe we place like a, I've done a really good job because I've guessed or figured out what you what you need. Yeah. Rather than, you know, I, uh, I read one book and it was, I, I can make you a mind reader. Ask the question. Yeah, okay. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Is that really it? Uh, why? It's stuff that we just don't really, because we, we, we come to a solution immediately when someone says something because it builds us up. When reality, you've got to be a sponge and just let everything soak into you. Mm. And when someone asks you the question, what would you do? Perf- you've got them. That's when you talk and you, you bring the solution. Mm. Okay, so asking questions, getting out of your own head and, and finding out what someone else's which objectives is, Which is are. really hard to do. Mm. Like I said, I'm three years into this and I'm still catching myself finishing a conversation, walking away and going, I don't know what I need to know mm. because I've been thinking about, and and that's where I think some of the natural sales guys are fantastic because they do it naturally. Mm. Or they've just been doing it for long enough that it it's become their natural. And what that, that gives to the, the recipient is that they feel valued, they're, somebody's interested in them, they're able to sort of share their pain. Yep. And, and you as the inquisitor or the questioner have got greater clarity you understand uh you're not you're not guessing as you say yeah, yeah. And i think are you prepared for are you prepared to do the work and not necessarily get the accolades for it because if it is all about especially in sport if it's all about being part of that winning team and getting to say it mm. um you know i think you're setting yourself up for a lot of uh a lot of misfortune, a lot of unhappiness because you haven't mm. got that necessarily. Um, it, it doesn't sound like it's a sports science lesson or a performance sport lesson. It sounds like it's that applies to every working industry. I think so. Communicate well to to work to work with and to other people's needs. Um, that sounds like it's. If you can, if you can coach in sports or. This, uh, or, or in the science side of it, if you can bring information and distill it and make it useful, you can do. You can work in any industry mm. you want, really. If there's an industry you're kind of interested in, you could do well in it. Brilliant. Listen, Harvey, I'm, I'm so appreciative of you sharing your your journey and your story, and I think it's a really powerful um, narrative of tenacity, but willing to do what's necessary, but bouncing back, a bit of resilience. Um, so massively appreciative. Thanks, Harvey. Well, thank you very much. I, as I said, I don't know if it's uh, <laughs> useful or not, but if it's, it's one of those things. If it's a tiny snippet of something that someone finds useful, then I'm really happy. If you'd like to hear more from Harvey, then you can follow him on Twitter at Harvey Galvin. Harvey is actually supporting and coaching some people in a similar situation, so that's the place to go and find him. And if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, I'm on Ingham underscore Steve and at support underscore champs. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, iTunes and YouTube. And you can subscribe through supportingchampions.co.uk. We can get weekly updates straight to your inbox.